All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition, episode six of uh, Midweek. We're going through a series called You Are What You Think, How the Enemy Attacks, How to Fight Back, and How to Know That You're Winning. And this episode is called Trigger Warning. And so I'm just trying to give you a warning ahead of time. We're going to be diving into some deep waters. We're going to be diving into some painful waters. Um, and if you want to go with me, I will try to keep you as safe as possible. But I just want to give you a warning on the front end to two particular groups of people that are probably, if you want to honestly skip this week and just uh, pop back in next week, I'm not going to hold it against you. It's going to be totally fine. Um, but two groups of people could really struggle with this. So I'm going to try to be as as gentle but as, as truthful as possible. The first group that's going to struggle with this um, are going to be folks that just you you're not willing or you're unable to hear anything negative about the church at all um sometimes you know people like to pile on and it's unwarranted and i get it but if you if you're like nope i will not hear any criticism of the church the church can do no wrong then i'd love to see you next week um but this this is going to be it's going to be some painful stuff and um the second group of, of people that it might uh trigger are those who have had bad experiences um, because I might be describing your life, your experience. This isn't meant as a, a way to try to trigger you and get you to get all up in your feelings again. I want to try to explain, hopefully cast some, uh, shed some light on why uh, you've had to walk through and, and maybe put the dots together in a way uh, that you know, that brings up some painful memories, but hopefully gives you a little bit of closure um, and some insight as well. So let me give you some goals of what we're going to try to do here at the top of tonight. So the first thing I want to try and do is I want to help you understand more about how the devil deceives. That's the goal of this whole series is how the devil deceives. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 6. And so that's the, the framework, the context within which we're having this conversation. I want to give you a very specific example of how the devil deceives so that you can have more information to know how to fight back and how to overcome. The second goal I want to try to accomplish tonight is I want to present my theory. That's what this is. This is just kind of my tangent episode um, to where I kind of just share what I've been learning over the last couple of years to see if I can convince you the same way that I've been convinced. I want to present my theory about how the devil is deceiving the church today. And the third goal is to introduce you to a Bible verse. If you haven't heard me yet, introduce you to a Bible verse that has changed my life. And I just, again, if you'll just indulge me for this episode, I want to try to present my case to you to see if it convinces you the way that it's convinced me. Now, this is episode six. Let, let me quickly recap where we've been so far. Episode one, we talked about the fact that this world is really, really, really messed up. Messed up enough that we need to do something about it. Episode two, we looked at the fact that Satan is behind it all. In episode three, that Satan's primary method of attack is through lies and deceptions. In episode four, we talk about why lies are so, uh, are so deadly. Because they just absolutely destroy everything in and around us and get us to make destructive decisions. In episode five... We talked about, that was last week, the unholy trinity. It's not just the devil's deceptions. It's the devil's deceptions combined with the flesh and the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil is the unholy trinity, and it's designed to overwhelm us. And so at that point, a great way to finish off last week is, okay, well, that's why I'm in church, and that's why I go to church every Sunday, 
every Wednesday or as often as I can because I don't want to be in that big bad world with the devils and the deceptions. And as long as I'm in the church, I'm safe. That's making a very big assumption that the devil has never been able to infiltrate the church and that there aren't deceptions that we have to deal with inside the church, not just outside the church. Because we talked about this a couple weeks ago, um, that the devil's most dangerous deceptions are the ones that we can't see. Like we see a lot of deception out there. There's so much deception out in the culture and we call attention to it and rightfully so. But those aren't the dangerous ones for us because if we see them like landmines, we can avoid them. It's the deceptions that we can't see. And so this episode, all I'm going to try to do is make the case that the church is not immune to the deception of the devil. And that's why I said it's a trigger warning. If if you don't think the devil has infiltrated the church at all, well, then this is not the episode for you because I'm going to try to make my case. And, and uh, I hope that you, if you know me or you can hear my voice, you hear my passion, you know, the, the church has had a rough couple of years and you could say it's had a rough while, not just a couple of years. And so it's easy for people to just dunk on the church and I hope that you hear my heart that this is not that. It's not just sour grapes, you know, I'm not a pastor anymore, so I'm going to try to burn the whole place down. No, 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 there is, a, a, there is a passion to see the church thrive. And to do that, I think we have to deal with the issues um, of, of, of what's causing, um, and I think it's the, what's causing our issues is the deception of the devil. We're going to get into that. So, but first... We look at the opening uh, question I asked just a little while ago and said, hey, how, if at all, has the devil's deception infiltrated today's church? And so several of you responded. You can go on my Facebook and see the responses that people put. Um, and they had several big theories. And, and that's, you know, kind of what my life was, just trying to figure out, hey, how can we help the church out? And so I'm going to give you my theory. And um, I haven't checked it in like last 10 minutes before I, I jumped on live, but I could pretty much guarantee you this is a theory that you've never heard before i was because i was born and raised in the church and then i've been a leader in the church and i've you know graduated with seminary degrees and all that sort of fluff i've never heard of this theory before so again i i just i want to try to make a case tonight so i'm going to try to build my case of why i think the devil's deceptions has infiltrated the church and specifically how it has and in a way that's incredibly toxic so we'll get to that, though. But first, instead of starting off with what, how, why, you know, what should you know, let's start off with why you should care. Why is this a big deal? Well, I think it's a big deal because it's a big deal if you care about the church. Because you want the church to thrive. I want the church to thrive. If you're done with the church and you walked away, you don't care about it, then you, then you don't care about the church. But if you love the church, then you're going to care about the church, I think, again, we can all say that the church has seen better days and, you know, we can blame things on like politics or culture or, you know, music or whatever. We can blame it on COVID and COVID. Here's what I say about COVID. COVID did not cause the problems in the church. COVID exposed them and rapidly accelerated them because the one thing that COVID was more than anything else, it was a massive disruption and people are creatures of habit they usually don't break their habits by choice. Something has to break it for them. 
And there's a lot of people that were kind of on the outskirts or thinking about possibly, you know, stopping church or just whatever. But, you know, it was something that they grew up with. Their parents brought them to church. Their grandparents brought them to church. And it was a habit. Well, COVID broke that habit long enough for people to look up and say, well, you know, maybe I don't want to go to church or maybe I'm going to go somewhere else or maybe I'm going to look for something else in a church. It it caused us to change our habits and that's what the church is continuing to deal with is this new post-COVID reality. And like everyone else, well, at least the people that I know and, and that, that, you know, I talk with about this stuff, I want the church to thrive. And so I hope you care because I care. Now, we're talking about, we talked about the unholy trinity last week. And so we can see examples of the world, the flesh, and the devil in the church. And some of them are pretty obvious. Like you can see examples of the world in the church. You can see examples of the world like, hey, you know, if you're preaching health and wealth, prosperity, and God just wants you to be rich and drive a Mercedes Benz, you know, and, and that's what God's plan for you is. Well, then you m- might be able to think, okay, that's just not, that's probably not God's will. Um, that's just prosperity gospel, and that's infiltrating the church with the values of the world. But worldliness isn't just, you know, pursued in a love of money and pleasure. It can be something as simple as politics. You know, if you advocate strongly for a political party and political positions, and that's coming from the pulpit, and you think, and you're absolutely convinced that God is a registered Republican or a registered Democrat, and he has to vote a specific way, and that God really, you know, is concerned um, more than anything else about the outcome of, of, of a presidential election in one particular country, even though God created, you know, the universe and everything in it, well, then that's allowing worldly politics to, to infiltrate the church. So we see examples of the world in the church. We can easily see examples of the flesh in the church. I mean, you could see it with sex abuse and, and, and horrible things like that that are going on. But I think you can also see the flesh. It's not just sex. The flesh is also pride, you know, arrogance. And sometimes you see the church being very proud and, and judgmental. That's the flesh. I mean, there's lots of ideas, uh, lots of examples of the flesh in the church. But this particular series is about the devil. So the devil influences the flesh and he influences the world. But I specifically want to talk about the deception is there a case to be made that deception, the de- de- specifically the deception of the devil, has infiltrated the church? And that has been part of my journey for the last 20 years. I mean, I knew from a very early age, you know, I born and raised in church, loved it. When I was in high school, I got really on fire for Jesus and started bringing a bunch of friends to church. Um, and the problem was they weren't church kids, and so they didn't know how to act and how to dress. And so a lot of them got run off by people in my church and that absolutely broke my heart that my friends who had just come to Jesus, they were good enough for Jesus, but they weren't good enough for the church. And and from my high school days, I just knew there was just this disconnect from the people at church who I knew and I loved and they loved Jesus, but they didn't love the people that I loved who were out in the world, you know, who were coming to faith and had questions about Jesus and the Bible and all that. And so it started a lifelong journey to try to help the church bridge the gap to to show the world the best parts of the church and to help the, the, the church love not the world, but love the people in the world the way that I loved the people and my friends in my public high school that I went to in Southern California. And so I was always looking for ways to help the church. And it was by changing, you know, the culture into one that that lived out grace and truth in the community. But 
if you've been around church for a while, you probably already knows how this work out because I was <laughs> I was convinced that we just needed to change things to help the church grow. Change in the church. Exactly. Yeah, you know exactly how that turned out. So, I mean, I just, I tried everything. If there was a church down the street that was doing something that worked, I tried it. Not because I want to try to copycat, because, but because I genuinely wanted to help see the church grow and become thriving and, 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 and healthy. So I tried everything. You know, I tried a lot of different things. I tried, you know, buildings and worship styles and preaching styles and all that stuff. If, you know, there was a book that came out that's a bestseller. I looked at that and, and possibly tried that. If there was a you know big name pastor, well, he had a big church, so he must be doing something right. So I tried that and I went to conferences and I got degrees and you know I tried everything and I just you know there was a point where I thought we were just one welcome kiosk away from revival, just breaking out in the church. And eventually, I just beat my head into the wall long enough to realize you know the the issues with the church is not just a governance style or the translation of the Bible that we use or the styles of the songs that we sing, it goes much, much deeper, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And that's what I want to share because I think I know, I know the answer. I've discovered the answer. The problem is it was not the answer that I wanted and it goes a lot deeper than, than I was comfortable with. And I'm still sitting with that. I'm still processing that, but I want to share what, what I've been learning in this journey. And Full disclosure, I was not immune. I was not immune from the the pull of the world and the flesh and the devil um, in the church. And so, you know, looking back at things that I taught or ways that I led or interactions that I had, um, you know, I think, no, there's too much of the world in that or there's too much pride in that or there's too much just trying to copycat the, the big church down the street in that. So I, I was not immune to that. My intentions were pure, at least in my mind, they were pure. But sometimes I really fell for the deception right alongside everyone else. So I care about this. I've cared about this for decades. And that's why I want to share this. So what should we know? This is going to be the biggest part of tonight. And this is what I want to look at. Um, and again, let me just see if I can build a case. Now I'm starting with two suppositions. That's just two building blocks from where we're going to go off of. And and so I'm making two assumptions, and um, hopefully you can make them with me. The first supposition is this, is that in some way, some form, some fashion, today's version of church is broken, okay? I'm not saying it's, it's you know, it's heretical. I'm not saying that, you know, God is, is thinks the whole thing is fake. No, I, I'm saying we're not living our best version of ourselves. Like we're not thriving. Attendance numbers are down. Baptisms are down. You know, uh, stories of people just being hurt by the church are up. Scandals are up. Abuse cases are up. I mean, so that's the one of the suppositions that we can argue on the degree of the brokenness, but I'm making the, the assumption that the church, today's version of church is broken because if it's broken, I want to fix it. I'm a guy. I'm a fixer. If it's not broken, we don't need to fix it. But I'm I'm coming off the supposition that I and that I believe to some extent it's broken. And I think we're at the point where we can hopefully all agree on that. The second supposition that I make, and I really want you to hear this, is that the people, the vast majority of the people, I mean like ninety nine hundred and ninety-nine out of a thousand people inside the church are good, loving people 
who genuinely love Jesus, who genuinely want to do the right thing, and who want to reach the world. And that's where the biggest disconnect is. I, I like to say that I grew up bilingual. Not that I you know, grew up learning English and Spanish, but I grew up inside a very conservative traditional church, and I also went to public school in Southern California. So I lived in two different worlds and spoke two completely different languages, languages and I saw how the people inside the church viewed the people outside the church, and I'm like, that's, that's not reality. And then I saw how a lot of people outside the church viewed the people inside the church. And again, I said, that's not reality, you know, because if all you read about the church is the latest, you know, angry social media rant or the latest news article or the latest pastor caught in a compromising position, well, then it's going to be real easy to think that there is just some vast conspiracy and that all these Christians are just money-hungry, flesh-indulging, just crazy people. And that's not it. Like I've lived among them, I've served them, I've pastored with, with, I've pastored them, I've ministered alongside them. Yeah, there, there's always you know a couple of crazies that sneak in, but the vast, overwhelming majority of people inside the church love Jesus, want to reach the world. So where's the disconnect? Why there's some people inside the church that want to do the right thing? And that's what we asked last week. Why, why is it so hard to do the right thing even though we know it's right? You know. And so I think it's, it's not a case of there's this conspiracy and all these church people are just liars. No, no, no. I don't think that. It's, I think our intentions are in the right place. I just think it's being interpreted in the wrong way or the, uh, the consequences or the outflow of it. Let me give you an example. Let's say, that, let's say that me as a father, let's say I just want the best for my kids. And I want my kids. I want my kids to strive, and I want my kids to achieve, and because I know they have incredible potential, and I know that that's the only way that they can really get what they want in life, and so I want the best for them. So let's say that's my intention. Let's say that's a good intention, but let's say the way that I live that out is by every time they do something, always giving them two or three things they could have done a little bit better. No matter what they did right. I'll say, okay, here's three things you can improve on. My intention might be I always want them to you know, have room for growth or have a way that they can get a little bit better at what they do. That might be the intention, but if I'm always telling my kids of ways that, or things they need to do to get a little bit better, well, that's going to give them a complex. I might intend well, but that's going to be interpreted as they're never good enough, they can never please me, and that the only value they have is by what they produce, you know, if they perform well enough. And that could really, really screw them up. So my intentions might be pure, but it's not coming across the right way. They're not receiving what I'm trying to give. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening in the church. The church is saying all the right things, and I think the intention is to show the love of Jesus to the world, but it is not being received that way by the world, which is why we see, you know, churches declining, churches struggling, all that sort of stuff. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. That's what I've been trying to figure out. Why is this disconnect? Because I know the people on the on the inside of the church mean well and they and they do love Jesus. Why is there such a disconnect between what's being said inside and what's being received and heard and lived out outside? So that's, that's kind of what I want to go to. Now, with that, 
Again, I thought the answer was, well, we mean well, and if we have newer buildings, or we mean well, so if we just have newer songs, or better stage lighting, or a welcome kiosk, or better kids ministry, that that would just fix everything. And the heartbreaking but eye-opening reality that I came to is that the, the issues are much, much deeper. The root causes go much deeper. It's, remember a couple episodes, if you stayed with me, it's the air that we breathe, it's the water that we drink, it's the toxicity that we're inhaling, we don't even realize we're inhaling, and so we're naturally exhaling that. And when I came to the realization of just how deep, I believe, this grand unified theory of the deception that I think has absolutely gotten the, the, the church off track, spoiler alert, you know, for the past 1,500 years plus, that's actually one of the reasons why I walked away from traditional church ministry. It wasn't that I didn't love to preach or I didn't love to pastor people or I didn't love a steady paycheck. It's because I became an M convinced that the, the framework of traditional church ministry has some, some poison pills and some toxicity in it that make it so incredibly difficult for well-meaning Christians to live out the love of Jesus. That I, I needed to sit with that, process that, and just try to figure out a, a new way forward which led to the jesus family but that's that's another conversation for another time here's my case okay so that's that's kind of where i'm going to try to go let me see if i can convince you so let me just kind of do a little bit of a deep dive of four pillars of the old covenant when i say old covenant i mean the old we use the term testament okay the old covenant is how God related to the people of Israel through the Mosaic Law, through the law given by Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the people of Israel. It's how God related to humanity through the nation of Israel. And we call it the Old Covenant because there is now a new covenant, a new covenant established by Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Son of God. So, the reason this is important is because the old way does not apply to us in the same way that, you know, if you live, I live in Mississippi, so I pay taxes to the federal government of the United States. I do not pay taxes to Great Britain because that is the old, you know, uh, owner of the United States, and now we're our, we're our own government. That's the old government. I, I don't drive on the right side of the road. Um, even though that's how the British do it, because I'm not British. That was the old way. After 1776, there's a new reality. So the old covenant was replaced by the new reality, the new covenant of Jesus. And just a little fun fact, covenant is the tr English translation of um, the Latin word testamentum. Okay, Testamentum in, in the Latin Bible in the Middle Ages, testamentum was translated as covenant. It's where we get the word testament as well from. So you think Old Covenant, you can think Old Testament. They're not exactly the same thing, but they're close enough. So Old Covenant, Old Testament, New Covenant, New Testament. So here is the framework, some things that were very common in the Old Covenants. Like the, if you're thinking about the house, these are the walls, the shingles, the roof, you know, the foundation, the studs, Behind the, behind the drywall, okay? So the first one is this. Four pillars of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. First, there was a specific location. And I'm going to go through this very quickly. This is, you know, worth an entire series in itself, but I'm just going to... 
we got a lot to get through, so I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can. Four pillars of the Old Covenant. The first one is specific location. You didn't just worship God anywhere you wanted. You went to God in a specific location. It was at the temple in Jerusalem. God had an address, and it was in the temple. The second pillar was scheduled rituals. You didn't just show up and do whatever you wanted. There were specific things that you did. That's what the, Le- the book of Leviticus is all about. If you sin in this way, this is the sacrifice you have to make. At this time of the year, this is where you have to show up for this kind of festival. And this is what you need to do for this kind of festival. Like There is a very scheduled um, rituals of things you had to do to please and honor God through rituals and festivals and, and so many other different things. But there, there was a calendar and everything. It was a big deal. Third pillar of the old covenant was specialized clergy. You couldn't just go talk to God. That That's not how it worked. You went through a priest. And there was a priest that was the intermediary between you and God. So you didn't just stroll in and say, hey, what's up, God? Mm-mm, no, 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 it didn't work like that. You went and did your schedule ritual, and then a specialized clergy intervened on your behalf at the location where God lived, which was the temple. And the fourth thing is the sacred text. The sacred text was the law and the prophets, what we know of as the Old Testament. It was God's specific rules. It was the Ten Commandments. Okay, so these are the four pillars of, of what kind of defined the, the anchors, the foundational pillars of the Old Covenant. Specific location, scheduled rituals, specialized clergy, and sacred text. Okay, now, here's the problem. Over the years, that began to be abused. And you actually see, if you read the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Jesus rebelling against, not the Old Covenant, he came to fulfill the Old Covenant. Jesus came to rebel against the abuses of the Old Covenant. You see Jesus really, really going up against the, the, the chief priests and the Sadducees, those who ran the temple. Why? Well, because people figured out pretty early on that if you control the real estate, you can control the religion. And they began to turn the temple into a money-making machine. It's why Jesus turned over the, ta- the tables in the temple. And it's easy for people to gravitate towards that. I'll give you a perfect example. Why does Disney World seem to raise prices every year for an entrance to Disney World? Do you know why they do that? Because they can. Because there's only one Disney World, and if you want to go to Disney World, you have to go to the only Disney World, and then you have to pay whatever they tell you to pay. When you can control the real estate, you can control the religion. And the corrupt leaders of the Old Covenant had began to turn the worship of God into a money-making enterprise, and Jesus had very, very strong words against that. There were abuses of the Old Covenant, and he talks a lot about this. Go look at Matthew chapter 23 when he gives the seven woes to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not based out of the temple. They kind of actually rebelled against the abuses, the money-making abuses um, of the temple, the temple system. So they were kind of out among the people. They were the culture warriors. And, you know, and so they created rules upon rules upon rules to make sure that no one ever came close to um, 
you know, breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So for them, Ten Commandments was enough. They created another 605, I believe, 605, 606 commandments to make sure you never even got close to breaking one of the big ten. And so all these things, it became a treadmill. And the and and Jesus fought against it so much because people were so burdened. Because if you think, hey, there's 605 different laws that I have to do, and if I break one of them, then God's going to be angry at me, and I'm going to be really screwed up, and I, you know, I have to please God, and to please God, I have to have 605, you know, laws that I can never break at any time. Well, you know what? You can do that for a while, but you can't do it forever, and it becomes an a treadmill and if you run if you run on a treadmill sooner or later you're going to get worn out you're just going to get off and so people were being unnecessarily burdened in their relationship with God because of the the rituals and the rules that were just thrown on them that turned what was supposed to be a joyful relationship into an absolute burdensome chore Jesus also had problems with the specialized clergy, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, because if you're the only ones who are in charge and you have the right to that, well, then you can abuse that. You see that all the way in the Old Testament, even with like um, Eli, one of the first you know, high priests and his sons had massive issues. And the Old Testament prophets would even call out the, the priests and the Levites saying, hey, you guys are just absolutely messed up. You know, you say you're supposed to um, speak for God, but you are not, you're, you're living for yourself and you're claiming that you're living for God. You know, in one of Jesus's most famous parables, the good Samaritan, you know, the, the whole scandal of that, that parable of the good Samaritan is that the Samaritan who was just an absolute pariah in Israelite society, he was the good guy. The bad guys were the priest and the Levite, the specialized clergy that were supposed to be a, a representative for God, but what happens when they go bad? And Jesus also had big problems with the sacred text, not the actual, uh, the Old Testament itself, but the interpretation of it, the interpretation. Go look at Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I say to you, you know, turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He was going against the negative and the erroneous interpretation because all this, it can really, really come together. If you've got a group of people who, A, just take this off one more time, who control the real estate real estate, and the only way to God, and if they claim to be God's representatives, and if they have a sacred text to back up their claims that they can twist and manipulate to their pleasure, and if their job, instead of trying to help people, is just to burden them with all these rules and regulations, it comes into a system that is ripe for just something new, and that's why people flocked to John the Baptist and flocked to Jesus, because they were just so tired of the Old Covenant and the abuses of the Old Covenant. Now, with that, Jesus instituted a new covenant. Let me give you exactly where he did that. Um, let me put this up. Sorry, Luke chapter 22. When Jesus had the Last Supper in Luke's account, he took the, the bread and he broke it. 
And then he took the wine. And when he took the wine, Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this blood is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Covenant is a big deal. That word covenant, probably the best way to describe it, because it's, it's a churchy word, but the best way to describe covenant, it's like a contract, but it's so much more important than a contract. It's not like a cell phone contract where you can get out of it if you pay a penalty. It's, it's Paul would equate the covenant of our relationship with Jesus like a marriage covenant. When you choose to marry someone, it's not just, hey, you know, let's just see how this thing works out. It's a nice tax write-off. At least it's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be, what do we say? For better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's a covenant. So when we switch from a new covenant, from an old covenant, it should change everything. Like, if we use the idea of marriage, you know, I I don't just go back and forth to my new covenant and my old covenant I, and like it, it doesn't work out well for me if i say you know i'm gonna i love my wife robin we've been married for years and years but you know my old girlfriend i'm gonna spend equal amounts of time with my girlfriend my ex-girlfriend and my wife that doesn't work like that life doesn't no marriage does not work like that i am done with my old covenant and i'm in a new covenant with god and my wife So Jesus, when he said in the same way, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He was saying everything is about to change. What exactly was he talking about? Let's go back to those four pillars with a specific location. Jesus wasn't as impressed with the temple as the disciples were. I mean, there's a, a, I think it's in the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, when they brought Jesus's attention to the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of the church and of the, of the, not the church, the temple. And I've been in church buildings that are just so wonderful and grand that just take my breath away. And Jesus was, Jesus's response was not one stone will be left upon the other. You know, don't worry about that. It's time is coming. And so Jesus's new movement of the new covenant was not built on a specific location. It would, he, that's why the New Testament would say that we, Christians, we are the temple of God. That it's not one specific place that we can meet God inside of us because we have the spirit of Jesus inside of us. So the specific location is not an address and brick and mortar anymore. It's us. We are the temple with the scheduled rituals. What's amazing is that Jesus, for all the, you know, if you setting up a religion, for all the, the, the festivals and the rituals that the Old Covenant had, Jesus gave his disciples one. We just looked at it in Luke chapter 22. The Lord's Supper. He said, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. It's the only thing that Jesus specifically gave his disciples to do. We also celebrate baptism, which Jesus told his disciples to do. And that's, we call that the two ordinances, the two rituals of the church. That's it. It's incredibly simple. He didn't say, you know, here's your Bible reading plan. Here's the conferences you need to go to. Here's how many times you need to have a quiet time. Here's how many times you need to go to church. You know, it's just Lord's Supper. Specialized clergy. You would have thought that Jesus, if he was improving on the old covenant, but he wasn't. He was fulfilling it so that he can start a brand new covenant. You would have thought that Jesus would have gotten the best and brightest you know, rabbinical students and started his own priesthood. 
but he didn't. He got a bunch of uneducated, possibly illiterate redneck fishermen, plus a tax collector and a guy who the Roman government would have called a terrorist, Simon the Zealot. He said, hey, you guys just, just love one another. A new command I give you. Just love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's it. That you don't need to go through a priest to experience God. Just love each other in, in the name of Jesus and you'll experience me. You'll experience God. In the sacred text, that here, here's what's interesting. In this, You need to understand what I'm saying because Jesus did not reinterpret the Old Testament. He didn't say you need to interpret the, the Old Testament better. If you look in the Gospels, when Jesus said, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. What he didn't say was, okay, well, here's what the verse really meant, or here's another verse. What he said is, what I say to you. Jesus didn't give them a new text. Jesus did not write Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Jesus did not write any of the books in the New Testament. He did not give them a new Ten Commandments. Jesus didn't write anything down. So he didn't give us a sacred text. He gave us him. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He told his disciples in John chapter 15, if you remain in me and if my words remain in you. So he gave us himself as the new sacred text. So Jesus responded and changed, I think, all of the four foundations of the new covenant, of the old covenant. That's why it's a brand new covenant. And here is where it really just kind of came together and light bulbs went off for me. The verse that really just transformed me, and if you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube, it's kind of small, but in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes. And in verse 41, Luke records those who accepted Peter's message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So the church was launched with 3,000 brand new believers. And I think between verse 41 and verse 42, the disciples had to figure out, the apostles had to figure out, we've got 3,000 brand new baby Christians. We don't have any New Testament scripture yet. We don't have any conferences to send them to. You know, we, we don't have a building. We don't have Sunday school space. We don't have anything. How do we help these brand new Christians become like Jesus? And that's what I think Luke answers in Acts 2.42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I think those are the four pillars of the new covenant. And I think each of these four line up with the four pillars we've been talking about. So let's work our way backwards. Prayer. That was the way that they met God not through going to a location, going to a piece of real estate in the temple, but through prayer. And they prayed at the temple, but they also prayed in the upper room. And they prayed everywhere that their location to meet God was with each other through prayer. Breaking of bread was their scheduled ritual. The Lord's Supper was what Jesus gave them. That was the center point, I argue, was the center point of their worship, not singing and not even preaching, even though those were parts and we see them mentioned later on in the New Testament. Their scheduled ritual was the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. Fellowship, that was their answer to specialized clergy. 
I mean, you don't see Peter starting a seminary. You don't see uh, um, these guys saying, hey, only specific people um, can intercede between God and man. Now, you see some instructions given for overseers and, and lead servants or servant leaders, deacons is, is what they're called in, in, in some translations. But it's not that these people stand between us and God because we are a royal priesthood. Peter would say, we are a royal priesthood. So fellowship was their answer to the clergy doing everything for them. Like, no, 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 God wants us to do it ourselves, that we don't need specialized clergy to forgive us of our sins. We can forgive each other, that we don't need specialized clergy to meet all of our needs. We can meet each other's needs. That's why you see one another, you know, love one another, accept one another, serve one another, pray for one another all over the place. That's, they were being clergy amongst themselves. And then the sacred text I think equates with the apostles' teaching. And the apostles' teaching is, is unique because the apostles' teaching, I believe, is, is what you see recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's, it's a longer argument, but the, the sum total of it is I don't believe that when Luke says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that it was, hey, they devoted themselves to a verse-by-verse study through the book of Leviticus, that they weren't trying to extrapolate upon and understand and live out the old covenant the old testament better but no 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 it was the apostles teaching what do the apostles teach well they wrote it down in the gospels of matthew mark luke and john so it was jesus so their sacred text was jesus what did jesus say how did jesus live what did he teach us what did he teach his disciples so the new covenant of jesus i believe is summed up in Acts 2.42, and that's the verse that just changed my life because it really unlocked how do you help people disciple, um, how do you disciple other people, how do you help people think, act, and love like Jesus. I think it's through these four practices, the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All right, so at this point, hopefully you're saying, okay, I'm vibing with you. Sounds great. I thought this episode was about the deception of the devil. Here's where things begin to took a hard left turn for me. The question is this. Do we see examples of the old covenant today? Because I don't think you would go to any church and hear anyone say, yes, we need to sacrifice animals at the temple in Jerusalem to be saved. No, 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 no. no. We're preaching Jesus. And so we can preach and we can intend to worship Jesus. But my argument is that I think there's a framework of the old covenant in new testament churches today that in the end what we're doing is i think we are mixing and matching the old and the new covenant in a way that is incredibly toxic like me hanging out with my wife and my ex-girlfriend like that doesn't work out or some people in america who want to drive on the left side of the road and some people in america who want to drive on the right side of the road like that would be absolute mass chaos you have to pick a covenant So where do I see that? Well, let me give you some examples of what I see. Specific location. Well, do we think of a specific location when we think of church? Yes, because there are buildings with addresses everywhere. And the whole thing about just buildings and money, I think, is is just filled with old covenant thinking. This is, I'll make another breakout video on this sometime, but the whole idea of buildings, Did you know that in two specific places, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, 
you see the apostles presented. Go, go look at it. Acts 2 and Acts 4. The apostles presented with cash, resources, property, buildings. And they were asked, what do you want to do with this? People were genu- generously giving because the Spirit was moving. There were people with needs, and they, they laid this money at the apostles' feet. What do you want us to do with it? And they could have done so many different things with it. They could have started their own seminary. You know, they were starting to get heat in the in the temple. They could have built their own temple. They could have, you know, built a parsonage for the apostles. They could have created their own community. I mean, there's so many things they could have done. What the apostles did both times in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, when they were given all these resources, they liquidated it, they sold everything, and they gave it to the poor. Peter, James, John, the apostles did not want anything to do with buildings and resources, I think a lot of it is because they saw how much it had been abused in the temple system. And Jesus told them a different way. So, when we now have church churches that are really buildings and money-making enterprises that are flush with cash and that we hoard it and we don't give it out, we don't give it away, that's not old, that's not new covenant thinking, that's old covenant thinking. And for instance, here's another thing, and this is, again, I don't have time to go deep into this. The whole concept of tithes and offerings, like tithes, just that word, tithes. You know what shows up in one testament? And it's the Old Testament. It's not in the New Testament. The whole concept of tithes was was another sacred ritual that the Old Testament covenant israelites had to do because someone needed to pay for the temple and someone needed to pay for the priests and so they were supposed to give a tithe you do not see jesus instructing the disciples at all about a tithe you do not see any of the apostles in any of the new testament letters telling the church you have to tithe so why do we hear tithing so much why did i hear it all growing up why did i even teach it well because it's in the bible We'll get to that in a second with the sacred text. But you only really need tithes if you have to pay for buildings and you have to pay for priests. I'm, I'm sorry, pastors. The new covenant wasn't built that way. It's not supposed to be built that way. You have to have tithes because someone's got to pay for the buildings and someone's got to pay for the salaries. But that's not what Jesus built when he, built the, when he launched the new covenant. That is old covenant thinking. Schedule rituals. You know, you got to go Sunday morning, Sunday night. You got to go Wednesday night. You got to do this. You got to have a quiet time. And and I think the intention is pure because you want to help people get closer to God. But if you've ever felt like you're on a treadmill and if you screw one thing up, God's going to be mad at you forever. That's not old. That's not new covenant thinking. That is old covenant thinking. Specialized clergy. I was a specialized clergy. I was a pastor. I went to seminary. I got degrees. I was a quote unquote pastor. And we, even though we say that we're all supposed to be a priesthood of believers, we've elevated pastors, celebrity pastors, you know, whatever you want to call it, into the place where they are the man of God and they speak for God. And that's great until you find out how many celebrity preachers who have been men of God, who have done so many incredible things, have had this secret life where they couldn't live under the pressure. And so they gave into the flesh. And then when they fell, you know, everyone lost faith in them. That happens all the time. So I think we see example of specialized clergy. That's not a new covenant idea. That's an old covenant idea. Sacred text. Sacred text. I think we treat the Bible as a buffet. 
that we mix and match the old covenant and the new covenant in an incredibly dangerous fashion that we don't teach people hey the old covenant the old testament it is inspired it is you know all scriptures god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and, and training in righteousness paul told that to timothy but we don't live under the old covenant we live under the new covenant but if we mix and match we take some of our if we get some of our ideas about how to you know honor god and live for god from the old covenant and from the new covenant and if we mix and match that that's when you get the schizophrenic idea of god because do you have to perform to get god to love you or does god love you by grace do you have to do this do you have to do that jesus was very clear that no he fulfilled the old covenant so that we don't have to so when we keep pulling back from the old covenant and preaching from the old testament in a way that helps people think oh well i'm supposed to follow the old and the new testament no 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 the Old Testament gives us the context. It's the prequels. We don't have to follow the Old Testament because Jesus followed it and fulfilled it. We're called to follow the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is contained in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament is built off of the Old Testament and people get really, really, really freaked out when they hear people say, oh, do you not believe the Bible? And, and are you saying this? No, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying that. I love the Bible. I've studied the Bible. I've got graduate degrees in the Bible. I'm not saying this to try to puff up. At one point, I had several New Testament books of the Bible memorized, books including the Gospel of John. Like, I'm Mr. Bible, and I've studied the Bible more in the past couple years than I have in years because I'm so fascinated with it. I'm not walking away from it. I want to try to interpret and view the Bible the same way Jesus did, the same way Paul did. And what's crazy, because you could argue, yes, Paul, he quoted the Old Testament more than any other New Testament author. Yes. Is there a place for the Old Testament? Yes. You see the Old Testament all throughout the New Testament. But, 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 Paul also railed against Old Covenant Christianity more than anyone else. And we're going to look at some verses in the book of Galatians. He took a harder stance against Judaizers, against those who kept trying to bring in their favorite parts of the Old Covenant into the New. And he said, guys, it doesn't work like that. So I think that it, the main issue that's facing the church is a, it's a deception that the devil has been weaving into the church from the very beginning. You see Paul wrestling with, with it, and they resisted it. But I think eventually they succumbed to it. And I think that for way too long the church has absolutely been in the in the depths of old covenant or old testament christianity so what do we need to know well i here's my argument that the devil is deceived from very early on the church into pursuing old testament christianity and you might say what's wrong with the old testament christianity that's like saying that you're a diehard maga liberal like old testament is the old way christianity is the new way you can't do both at the same time it's a contradiction so old testament christianity is again like saying you're a maga liberal or you're a i don't know a, a trump loving biden supporter like like no, that, that's not a thing that that's just that that's not a thing you're gonna have to pick a side so that's my whole argument of what I think has tripped up the church 
for so long, and that's why. It doesn't excuse the behavior of the church and the, the areas that we've fallen, but it helps explain it. It helps explain it. So, I know I've gone on way too long. Let me see if I can try to start landing the plane. For me, this explains the church both inside and out. I think um, it shows why um, the church has struggled with it, uh, with, with reaching the world, because we're trying to live out a form of Christianity that Paul himself says will not work. Let me give you the verses, okay? So uh, let me take this off. In, in Galatians chapter 3, here's what Paul said. He said, you foolish Galatians. This is first century. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, that's the old covenant, or by believing what you heard, that's the faith, new covenant? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Are you trying to mix and match the old and the new covenants? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? He's saying, guys, you started, you're saying all the right things, but you're, try, you're, you're saying you're all about Jesus, but you're trying to please Jesus by the flesh, by the old covenant, and it doesn't work like that. So here's, my, here's what really kind of convinced me. It was, it was so simple that I just, at that point, I just dropped a mic and I'm like, okay, I, I, I'm in. So in Galatians chapter 5, what... Um, what Paul does, he said, here, let me just go and game it out. If you try to follow Jesus by the flesh, here's what that looks like. Paul said, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we see the Spirit and the flesh contrasted with each other. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the Spirit is the new covenant and the flesh and is or the law is the flesh is the old covenant okay so here's what he says he gives you two lists the second one is the one that we know the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control if you live under the new covenant that's what your life will look like love joy peace forbearance or patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control the one before that is the one that we don't know as often. He said, but the acts of the flesh, this is what's going to result when you try to live out the old covenant. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So he gives us two lists. And so my argument is that by the way that we say, we're saying, we're saying we're all about Jesus and we're all about the gospel. But if you had to give these two lists to people, let's say a third of the people that you gave it to were inside the church, a third of the people were people who walked away from your church, no longer in your church, but they attended at one time, and a third of the people were people who lived within a one-mile radius of your church building. And if you gave those people these two lists and said, what list describes this church better is it love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness or is it hatred discord 
jealousy, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And for me, that's what floored me. I said, no, I, I think we're, we want to do the right thing, but we, we're angry, we're mean, we're self-righteous, we, we're discord, factions. You, you want factions? Talk about like denominations. And we, we continually narrow the group of people with which we can have fellowship with because they have to believe everything that we believe on primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines. And if not, they're apostates and we can't do anything. That's Paul saying that is acts of the flesh. And that is what that means. That is a sign. That is a telltale sign that we are trying to live out Old Testament Christianity. We are mixing and matching the old and the new covenants and Satan has hoodwinked us into thinking that the best way to please God is with all these Old Testament rules. And again, we're not sacrificing animals, you know, on a temple in Jerusalem. But we have the framework. We have the framework of Old Testament Christianity, Old Covenant religion all around us. We've got a specific location. It's not a temple. It's a church building. We have scheduled rituals. We have worship services that you have to attend. You have to do a certain thing. You have to do three songs, and then, and then you have to give an offering because you have to give a tithe. And then we have a specialized clergy, pastors like me, and then you have a sacred text, the Bible, and pastors love to go back and forth between this verse and that verse and this testament and that testament just to kind of keep things light and keep things fresh. And I know that if you want to, you can manipulate the text to say whatever you want. That's why you hear some of the craziest things out there, and they all have Bible verses to back them up, or at least they think they do. So it's like a person who wants to stop drinking but they still work at a beer factory or they work as a bartender. It's like a person who doesn't want to be abusive, but that's all he's ever known. Like, I think it's, that's why I think the church can mean to do the right things, but still it come across the wrong ways because it's all we've known. I think the toxicity, the deception, it's in the air that we breathe. It's in the water that we drink and we don't even realize it. So, we are saying that we're living out the new covenant, but what's coming out, we're saying new covenant language, but what we're saying, what we're living, sorry, is old covenant deeds. And that's what Paul said when he said, hey, the acts of the flesh, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, idolatry, hatred, discord, impurity, sexual immorality. It's a telltale sign that we've got an old covenant problem in our midst. And so that is what I try to warn you about. Because it'd be great. It'd be great if the problems of the church could be solved with just a new Bible translation or building a bigger building or getting rid of the bigger building or singing hymns or not singing hymns, you know, or getting this pastor or that pastor or joining this denomination or that. It goes much deeper than that. It goes into buildings, paid staff, tithes how we preach the bible what what books we preach from where we get our theology from it's so much deeper and that's when i had to step away and say i, I need to sit with this and i and that's one of the reasons why i intentionally stepped away from traditional ministry 
because traditional ministry is me going into a building that I have to maintain and I have to pay for. And the pressure is to get people to give money because there are staff that depend on that. And so I'm constantly fundraising to pay for buildings and pay for staff. And that's just like strikes one and two. And then, you know, it's, it's just, a, it's an old covenant framework and new covenant Christianity does not work on an old covenant framework. So from here, I mean, this may be the, if you've had a conversation with me, if I could get you alone for an hour, that's what I've been talking about. But at this point, just pray, discern, you know, read, read the New Testament, read the Gospels, read the book of Acts, pray and see what the Spirit tells you. I'm still sitting with it. The Jesus family is an attempt to try to build something that is purely New Covenant. And so that's, I'm still on the, on the front end of it. So that in and of itself is a whole series. I just wanted to say that in this episode because this whole episode has been about, this whole series is about the deception of the devil. And I think that the devil has pulled a fast one on us from almost the very beginning. I can trace it back to the early 300s when Christianity became the, uh, the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's a different conversation for a different time. So I think that we've been going off track for a long, long time. And I can tell you, and you'll have to just take my word for it, which you don't have to, but my two majors in college were religion and history. I'm fascinated with religion, Christianity, and I'm fascinated with history. So I am a huge student of church history. I've read thousands, literally thousands of pages on church history. And so I'm uniquely positioned to say it's been bad and it's been broken for a long time, much longer than just the last political cycle. So that's how I believe the devil deceives the church. How do we fight back? That's what the series is going to go from here. We're going to get into Ephesians 6, I promise. We've been in six episodes. We still haven't even gotten to the main passage, but we're going to get into it in episode 8. We're going to look at it in episode 7, but first I want to give you all the ways that I misinterpreted and misunderstood the famous passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. And that is next week, if you're still with me. It's called Medieval Times. Thank you so much. God bless.